and welcome to the Climate Minute, your source for insight and perspective on global warming news. My name is Ted McIntyre. Nish shows for the week of, well, it's for Valentine's Day, February 14th, 2024. It turns out that even though love is in the air, there's also a lot of carbon dioxide. There are currently 424.2 parts per million of carbon dioxide in the air. And as you know by now, that is 75 parts per million above the 350 parts per million that scientists tell us we need to be at. On top of that, uh, unhappy fact, it turns out there's only 2,148 days left until the year 2030. So time's running out. We need to reduce our carbon emissions by half by then. We've got 2,148 days to do it. So it is rapidly heading into springtime here in Massachusetts. And it's the springtime of the second year of the legislative session. So dear listener, if you haven't been paying attention, let's rewind. We elected our state government in the election of November 2022. And all those men and women marched off to Beacon Hill and wrote proposals for a whole bunch of bills. And essentially, the first year of the two-year session of your legislative of your legislator is basically tied up in reviewing bills that are before the uh, before the state house. Then, in about February of the second year of the session. All those bills get kind of pop up like daffodils in the springtime being prepared to be voted on sometime this summer. So if you, if you again, if you think about it, what usually happens is that in July of the second year of the legislative session, there is a big push to pass legislation. And then that all resolves itself by election day, November 2024, when everyone gets elected for yet another two-year term. Anyway, that's the cycle of bills on Beacon Hill. And it turns out there's a lot of climate bills in that mix. Uh, I, I think it's fair to say that there's more enthusiasm nowadays for passing climate legislation on Beacon Hill. So in the past, instead of having one bill every two or three years, we're now able to get climate bills considered on a, in each session, which is a good thing. Uh, and those bills have popped out. One of the bills that's floating around on Beacon Hill under consideration uh, is a bill called Polluters Pay. And this is what we're going to talk about today, but it's essentially a bill that works to, or looks to get funding for climate work from big companies that have contributed to the pollution that historically Massachusetts has generated. Right? And that's an interesting way to think about getting the money, because getting money is the most important thing, right? To, to fund all the important stuff that needs to be done. Anyway, because the legislative season is just bursting forth with new bills and this interesting polluter pays bill is floating around, we are fortunate to have with us today an expert who is the legislative coordinator for a group called 350MA. Maybe you've heard of it. <laughs> 350MA is a big group here in Massachusetts. Uh, our guest is Dan Zakin, who is the legislative coordinator at 350 uh, Massachusetts. And welcome aboard, Dan. How are you doing? Thank you so much, Ted. It's great to be here with you today. That's great. So I gave uh, kind of an explanation of the state of play. Did I say anything wrong? Is there anything that, uh, from what I said, uh, 
uh, that people that, that you would want to correct? Uh, yeah. Nothing to correct, but just to add that about there being so many good climate bills out there right now in the Massachusetts legislature, when we have done our endorsement process for bills in the past, it's picking the ones that maybe fit what we're trying to do and we're maybe aligned with. And this time, when we were looking through all the bills out there, it was a brutal process of elimination because there's a lot of really good bills out there. And of course, climate touches on a lot of issue areas from transit to electricity generation to electricity distribution to housing. Um, and so there's just so much good work happening. And it's really a pleasure to be part of the movement right now. So when you say when you say we, just background, you're part of 350MA, but correct me if I'm wrong, I believe that that evaluation of all the different bills and which one is are, are like the best ones to work on that's done at a group called mass power forward is that true or is that is is this evaluation the 350 ma evaluation so both so 350 mass is a statewide network of climate activists and we have chapters that we call nodes scattered all over so we have a franklin chapter down by you we have a boston chapter cambridge somerville berkshires all over the state and within 350 Mass, we have our statewide legislative team, which is representatives from all the nodes across the state that come together to democratically decide what legislation we're going to support. We're also a member of the Mass Power Forward Coalition, which is a huge, huge coalition. I think they have over 200 member organizations that come together as a somewhat united climate movement to decide on what our common priorities are. And so within 350 Mass and within our legislative team, we have our priority bills and our bills that we generally support. And then within Mass Power Forward, there are these six Mass Power Forward priority bills, which overlap a decent bit, but there are some nuances in there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Interesting, interesting. It is true that there, this is a wonderful time to be working on climate stuff because there are lots of bills. There's a recognition, I think, to your point of how deeply climate affects all aspects of our lives. So there's lots of bills that float around from bills that talk about, you know, the environmental justice, how to mitigate the environmental justice impact, the, the climate inequities, the how are we going to build enough pipe, uh, uh, power lines and generate the wind to how are we going to power all those electric cars? How are we going to put heat pumps everywhere? It's really a really a fascinating time. So tell me, given that evaluation, what, what most of the top, what kinds of things are you thinking about uh, working on as as the thing you want would like this if you could have a magic wand, what would what 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 would the state house do? Yeah, thank you. So the main bill that I'm focused on within my scope of work is what we've been referring to as the Make Polluters Pay Bill. Of course, the official legislative name is an act establishing a climate change super fund and promoting polluter responsibility. But that's quite a mouthful. Mm -hmm. um, and it was numbered H872. So that's the House bill the number for there. And S481, which is the Senate bill. And the idea behind just, this bill, and it just, just so that people know, for whatever crazy reason, there's a different name, there's a different number associated with the bills in the House versus the Senate. And I think even sometimes the numbers change as they march along. I mean, it's very difficult to yep, follow that's exactly by, right. by number. So you're saying make polluters pay is a good 
tag word to hang on to the essence of the idea as it progresses through this progress, right? Yeah, and it both changes as you go through the process and as you go session to session. So we're really fortunate to have two fantastic lead sponsors that introduced the bill on our behalf. Uh, Representative Steve Owens from Watertown on the House side and Senator Jamie Eldridge from Acton on the Senate side. And we have a broader campaign beyond just this bill. So we're very focused on the bill. We think the bill is really important. And just a second, I'll tell you what the bill is all about. But we're also building local support, educating communities, and passing municipal resolutions. So there's a lot happening outside of the direct legislative push. And we think that's so important because we really think that this bill can change quite a bit. The core idea is that the bill will make the largest oil and gas companies that are connected to Massachusetts give $75 billion over 25 years for the costs of the climate crisis. That is specifically for what we call adaptation. So within climate policy, there's kind of two spheres. There's mitigation, which is reducing emissions, energy efficiency, all of these things that uh, keep our society running more cleanly. And then there's adaptation, which is getting our communities ready for the worst impacts of the climate crisis that we're already locked into. I appreciated in your intro that you specified the exact parts per million that we're at. And we know that when we have that much carbon in the atmosphere, we're already seeing some impacts. I think that just this Monday, the intense rain that we got that flooded parts of Boston, and this past summer, the flooding that we saw in Western Mass, the extreme heat, the air pollution from the wildfire smoke that almost blocked out the sun here in Boston, we're seeing these impacts already. And we know that we need to keep our communities safe. And... When we talk about adaptation, I think there's some fear from activists that focusing on adaptation leaves mitigation behind. So we're talking about adapting to a changing world, but we're not stopping the thing that's causing the changing. And with 350, what we're trying to do with this campaign is do both at once. And so this campaign is really focused on the adaptation side. And then we have other work, other campaigns and other bills that we're focused on that go towards the mitigation side. With this bill specifically, the idea is that we're going to have to pay a huge amount of money to prepare our communities. And this looks like everything from um, local greenery that reduces air pollution and reduces urban heating to revitalizing coastal ecosystems that can withstand storm surges and reduce flooding to all sorts of depaving to increase permeable surfaces so that when we have a huge rain event, that water can soak in and not just flood down our streets. And it's going to take a lot of money. It's going to take a huge, huge amount of money. And either you and I are paying for it in our taxes, or the people who actually caused this crisis are paying for it. And I think that setup is what's most important to this campaign and really the driving force. And so the idea of this bill is that the oil and gas companies are put on essentially a 25-year payment plan, where each year they pay $3 billion collectively proportional to their share of emissions between 2000 and 2018. And the idea there is that between that span, we can measure with a high degree of accuracy how much they specifically are responsible for. And so we can hold them responsible very accurately for their emissions 
and their share of total emissions is then proportional to their share of the money that they have to give forward. Oh, so that's so okay. All right, right. That's in, so. Let's let's just between two thousand and twenty eighteen, some big polluter emitted carbon dioxide, which you now know well, and that is the basis for basically prorating the payments going forward. But I guess my question is, what can you give me an example of who's a big polluter? Because, of course, what I think is the big polluters are, are they're giving me the natural gas that I'm keeping my stove, cooking my uh, spaghetti with, right? Is that, is it like, uh, who are the big polluters? Is there like one prime example that clarifies what that would be? Yeah. So we're looking less at distributors like uh, Eversource or um, National Grid and more at the big producers. Under the U.S. Constitution, for us to be able to hold companies accountable, they have to extract, refine, sell, or advertise their products in Massachusetts. And because of how vertically integrated a lot of these huge oil giants are, think Exxon is one of the biggest oil producers in the world, and you have an Exxon station right on your corner, um, we can hold them liable. And what we're essentially doing is taking the legal framework that underlies a lot of climate legislation, going back to the Superfund system in the 70s that said, if you make a mess, you clean it up. And we're applying that to the climate, which is both sturdy as a legal proceeding can go, because we've done it many times before, but also ambitious because it's never been applied to the climate before. And just, the just let me damages just, are a lot less direct. Yeah, yeah. Let me just. I mean, that's a that's a great analogy. That I want to hang on to because I grew up in New Bedford, which has one of the biggest Superfund sites. Uh, and in Superfund, what, what does that mean? There's these there are these places that where companies have dumped a lot of. Okay, so the EPA sort of not climate related stuff, but the EPA when there's toxic chemicals that get dumped into a well somewhere, that can be the companies that did that have to pay money that goes into a fund that is then held for the mitigation of the damage of the poison in that well over there. And so you're saying that's a legal template that the make polluters pay is based on and is firmly established in law that this is a reasonable way to go. Interesting, interesting, interesting. That's exactly right. And the tricky thing here is that if you're dumping chemicals under your factory or whatever, there's a very direct one-to-one effect, right? You dump your chemicals, it poisons a local water source or something like that, which is horrible, and you clean up and it all stays in that location mostly. With climate, you're emitting into the atmosphere and it's the cumulative impact of all the emissions around the world that then are causing these climate damages that we're seeing in terms of flooding, a higher greenhouse gas effect, extreme heat, air pollution, And so it's a lot less direct. And so holding these companies accountable has been this really long fight. And the way that we're trying to do it with this piece of legislation is structured so that we can have a mass movement around it. Because we're a grassroots organization. All all of our power comes from the people involved in our organization, our volunteers, our members, our activists. There's other groups that are doing this different ways. So there's a lot of high-profile lawsuits all around there. Um, There was a big one in Montana, in Hawaii, 
on the federal level. I think Juliana versus the United States is the name of that one. That are essentially trying to hold polluters accountable through the courts by saying that you're endangering our futures. And so I hope that all of these efforts will succeed, but we're trying to really do this on whatever front we can, because we have to hold these fossil fuel companies accountable for throwing away our futures. I mean, I, I have, I'm old enough to have all, always have some anecdote, but I remember being told years ago about how the climate movement was somewhat analogous to the D-Day invasion of France in the sense that there were some guys doing the meteorology to decide when to go, when to go in. There were some people parachuting in. There were people storming the beach. There was like a million different jobs that all had to come together to do this one big thing. And so you're saying that people are challenging in the courts, the, the pollute, trying to make polluters pay. You're trying to do this through a legislative method. And it's just, it's one more thing aimed at. Well, yeah, making, making the, the, the companies that have profited from what they knew was wrong pay for it. Interesting. Yeah. And I think that's a really good metaphor because it applies both on the efforts to hold them accountable, but it also applies on the adaptation side of the bill as well. Right. So there's kind of two sides here. There's the corporate accountability for the damages that they're causing. And then there's the, how do we keep our communities safe? So that $75 billion of funding that I'm talking about, all of it is going to go towards projects scattered around the state. 40% of that funding is required by the bill to go towards projects that directly benefit environmental justice communities. And by environmental justice, we mean communities that are disproportionately impacted by pollution from our current energy systems, from our current transit systems. So I think East Boston is a very classic example because they get the trifecta of pollution from the airport, from the jets taking off and landing, pollution from the highway, and pollution from the liquid natural gas terminal just a couple miles over in Everett. And so they're disproportionately impacted by a current system. And they're also disproportionately vulnerable, right? It's low-lying, surrounded almost by, on all sides by water or wetlands. And so when we have flooding, communities like East Boston are going to be hit first and hardest. And so the bill is structured to prioritize these communities and make sure that they are adequately funded in a just way. That's fantastic. Does, does the bill, so that I have two questions on one on each side of the ledger there. Let me ask, does the bill prescribe how the money will be spent? That is it say, is some of it allocated for uh, East Boston, or is is there like a commission that will decide where all you know how best to adapt? Or are we saying that the state, the, you know, we have a climate czar, so called climate czar, right? They're they're the ones that are going to figure out how to to spend the money in a fair way. Yeah. So, climate chief Hopper, I think is who you're referring to there, right? Yeah. And really excited to have her in the office. She is the first of her sort of title really grateful that governor healy brought her in she released a fantastic resiliency plan a couple months ago that highlighted the need for resiliency what was missing in that plan was how we fund it and so we're hopeful that this bill can provide the funding there are experts that know a lot better than us where mm -hmm. specifically it should go right. so right. under the bill when the money is gathered from these oil and gas companies which will be a process in and of itself, but we can get to that. It's going to go and be 
run by the DEP, the Department of Environmental Protection. Mm-hmm. And they assemble an overseeing council. I don't remember exactly who's in it, but I can get that to you. Um, that there will be a council of wise people. It. Exactly. And community advocates and you know people from all walks of life. And so in a lot of ways, we know where this money needs to go around the state, but we need to get the money so that we can actually do this good work. And as you so poignantly mentioned in your intro, the time is running out. So let me ask the question on the other side. So again, there's two sides to this. There's how are you going to spend the $75 billion over 25 years? And the other question is, how do you get the $25 billion over 25 years? And I just, just have it in my head. You're saying, if we go back to the idea that the big polluters who are identified by how much they sold into Massachusetts, how much fossil fuel they sold into Massachusetts between 2000 and 2018. And we are nowadays smart enough to accurately say, let me just say Exxon sold oil and gas and what to people in Massachusetts. That amounted for X amount of the carbon dioxide pollution generated by Massachusetts. And therefore that's portion, that fraction of the $3 billion is owed by Exxon. That a fair kind of description or yeah that's fair um i think that there's some language in the bill Mm -hmm. that might stay as it currently is and might be changed depending on how it's redrafted for the next session where it might be taken as a share of global emissions Mm -hmm. and not just massachusetts emissions Uh, uh 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 uh-huh uh-huh yeah so so, those are details that have to be worked out but basically it's a proportional but yeah, that proportionality is correct. And Exxon, if you think, it's like there's seven sisters. They always call them the seven sisters oil companies. Right? I don't know if there's more or less now, but between you know the Saudi Arabia, Ramco, and Exxon, I mean, you, you pretty much, there are not many of them, right? So if each of them is worth 15% of the total carbon emissions, I mean, that's a lot of uh, responsibility. Let me just say that. So. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it'll be and less likely to get money from the nationally owned ones. Mm-hmm. So there's mm-hmm. the Saudi one, there's the Emirati one, there's the Venezuelan one, there's all sorts of, there's Pemex from Mexico. Right. All of these big national oil companies. That's a lot harder because that gets into all sorts of international relations issues. But we are a huge fossil fuel producing nation, and there yeah. are a lot of American-based companies that would fall under this bill. Does the does the bill give the state any enforcement? So suppose we we pass a bill and say, okay, um, these big companies, and let me just say Saudi Aramco or, or whatever company that is, right? The, the Saudi National Fund, they owe X billion dollars to the state of Massachusetts, and they and they don't do anything. Right? What's the enforcement? Does the bill say you can't sell your stuff in Massachusetts anymore? It doesn't say that specifically. Uh I don't know how the enforcement would work specifically for the foreign-owned companies. Mm -hmm. For the U.S. ones, they're still liable under the U.S. courts. So if they refuse to pay, then the attorney general, whose job is to enforce the law of the state, would be able to take them to court. And so that could unfortunately end up kind of in the same sort of judicial complexities that we're currently in. Remember the lawsuit that Governor Keeley started when she was Attorney General against Exxon was along pretty similar veins. 
And that lawsuit is still going. Attorney General Campbell is still continuing that lawsuit. Right. So there are some proceedings. It could unfortunately end up there. But we've seen big companies pay for public damages before. This isn't the first time. Remember, some towns are still getting money from the tobacco companies. I was just going to say, I mean, that took 30 years, right? And, uh, but it took 30 years. Paid. Uh, yeah. And I, my, the thing I've heard on these, so the court cases, dear listener, there have been court cases now, as you say, for 10 or 15 years. And a lot, some like this Juliana case, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Dan, is based on, on what's called the public trust doc, doctrine. That is to say that the government has responsibility to ensure it has a public trust just like the federal government has a responsibility to keep the Mississippi River navigable, right? And they dredge it out every year. The federal government has a responsibility to keep the air clean enough for people to have a future. And there's a responsibility there, right? And that case has been back and forth and argued around and around and around. But the funny thing is, you just keep doing it until finally one day you win, and then, then the floodgates open. And so it's a uh, – anyway, yeah. So the, the, I think that taking – if Massachusetts took these people to court, eventually they'd get the money. So. Yeah, so- and remember, we're not fighting alone here. Um, this bill is very similar to sister bills that have been filed in Vermont, in New York, in Maryland, in, I think, California. And so we're part of a nationwide movement here, and we're standing on the shoulders of all of the other folks fighting for possible accountability. So Juliana is a great example. And they've been fighting. I think they filed that in 2015, 2016. I might be wrong on that. And so there is a huge national and even international movement pressing for this. So, so two aspects. One, I want to hear about what's where is this bill on Beacon Hill, right? What's but go back and just talk for another minute about because I think it's an interesting idea. What I think you said was that this bill and support for this bill is is important in and of itself, but it's also important because it brings together lots of different uh, groups to recognize their their allyship and their how they're related to each other. So working for this bill brings in uh, communities that may not have been uh, – focused on this in the past. It, it, it makes allies out of people. It makes a sort of coherent movement. Well, I mean, you tell me. I mean, you know better than I I mean, is, yeah. is that true? I mean... I don't think that it's going to single-handedly make a coherent movement, mm-hmm. but that's definitely something that we're focused on, and I think that this bill can contribute to that. So that starts with the bill itself. It has the provision that 40% of the funding has to go towards projects that like, directly benefit environmental justice communities. And so we're trying to look out for justice that's in line with the President's Justice 40 initiative, which has something similar, I believe, about IRA funding, which is the Inflation Reduction Act that was passed uh, two or three years ago. Um, And then there's a lot of provisions protecting the workers on these projects. So I think all the projects are required to abide by, um, I always mess up this labor language. Right. Fair wage, prevailing wage and fair labor laws. I think we mm-hmm. got that right. Mm-hmm. And then medium and large projects are required to use apprenticeship programs, which mm-hmm. is how we train the workforce in the future. Interesting. And so the idea here is that we can bring together the big green environmental groups. That's 
us, that's MCAN, who you're representing here, which is the Massachusetts Climate Action Network, that's the Sierra Club, and a lot of the other larger environmental and climate groups. It brings together environmental justice groups that often are more local and community-based, and it brings together labor. We already have the endorsement of SEIU 509, which is the Service Employees International Union, and they represent a pretty wide variety of workers across the state. Um, and we're in talks with some of the other unions to hopefully get them on board. Okay, and so I think a lot of the project over the spring and summer is to continue building those relationships with labor mm -hmm. and hopefully get their support for this initiative. So that's, well, that's great. So tell me where, what's, what's going on on Beacon Hill? Where, where is the bill? What are the prospects? Should we, uh, you know, we're heading into the, the season of passing things, right? This summer, you'll be back, I'm sure, to, to explain what's going on in July, because I've seen it too many times. We'll have a big uh, palooza in July. But tell me, what, where, where's this bill? What, what's going on with it? Yeah, so we actually got some disappointing news a week ago today. So a week ago today, February 7th, was Joint Rule 10, which is an internal legislative deadline by which bills either have to be reported out of committee or they're sent to study, which is the euphemism for a bill being killed. The bill that we're supporting was unfortunately sent to study, which was disappointing, but not necessarily surprising. This is a pretty massive bill, and it was the first time that it had been introduced. And bills in Massachusetts, the common sense at least, is that often they take six to 10 years from first being introduced to actually passing. I think as activists, it's our job to reject the common sense and change it and change the political calculations for these legislators. So I think that our goal for this session is really to set ourselves up for success to pass it next session. Would you, con so you're, you're very kind to say, you know, the euphemism is uh, sent to study. Right. And this goes back to the idea that a lot of bills get proposed during the first year and then they disappear until about now. And then they they pop out with, uh, you know, other they come back uh, above surface to be. Would you continue to talk about and lobby for this polluter pay bills? You know, say, please put it back in. Is that is that a re that seems like what you'd want to do? Right. Say, you know, you didn't include it. Please include it and just keep talking about it and building the support for it that way. Yeah, that's definitely an avenue. And from a technical legislative perspective, bills can be amended or added on to larger packages. The bill, This bill itself, I think the best path forward is to talk to the administration, try and get their buy-in with this. Hopefully, mm -hmm. it's very in line with their values and their support, as I was mentioning earlier about um, Climate Chief Hoffer's report. Talk to key legislators to see if we can tweak some of the language to win their support on it. But I think that there's a lot of work we have to do outside of the building. I think that there's a lot of people who support this idea in theory, who are fond of the idea. We have some polling that says that 77% of voters in Massachusetts support a one-time fee by the fossil fuel industry. But they probably don't know about this bill. They probably don't know about this movement. And so we have a lot of work to do to spread the message and get people activated and excited about this. Well, that, that of course, is now you, to talk politics, I mean, that begs the question, say, make polluters pay 
the first thing that comes to people's mind is, oh, yeah, the polluter is going to pass that cost on to me, right? And, and the, the death knell for many climate um, uh, bills like this is is the accusation that it's oh, some kind of a tax and you're going to, you know, everyone is going to have to pony up money to pay for this and uh, it'd be better to burn up the planet than raise taxes. Is that a fair, I mean, how do you answer the the the, the critique that somehow all this money is ultimately going to come out of the pocket of um, you and me? I think that's a really fair critique. And I think people should be worried about that. With this bill, we have some things built in to try and prevent that. So it's not a straight tax. It is limited to the top tier of emitters. And so the idea there is that because it's both limited to the top tier and because it's a tax, sorry, not a tax, keep saying the wrong language, because it's a fee on past profits and past revenue, they can't pass it on without supply and demand being undercut by middle and smaller, medium and smaller producers. And of course, in the fossil fuel industry, the largest few have the lion's share of the market. But there are still other producers that fit in different places. And so we're optimistic. We've had some economists do some analyses that give us some confidence that it won't be passed on. Mm -hmm. And there's some things built into the language like this idea of it only being the top tier of fossil fuel companies. In the top tier, again, mean you mean, I think I think what you mean is like these massive companies that you see on uh, Fox uh, uh, Business, right? Their stock went up and exactly. Exxon went up. It's like these huge, huge things. And the argument is that there are those huge players are dominant, but there are other companies that will not be subject to this fee, and they're going to keep their prices low, and that's going to force the big guys to not raise their price prices to pay for this this money thing. Okay, that's all right. yeah, that that's makes exactly sense. right. That makes so sense. we're optimistic about it, of course, with economic economics and with these massive massive companies. The rules don't always apply to them in the way we'd want them to. So I think that I'm really passionate about this bill, and we're really confident about what it will do. But we're still fighting an escute system. And so I don't think that this is the only act of polluter accountability that we're going to have to win. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I think oh, – I mean, this is really an interesting discussion. I've learned a lot about what this bill is and is trying to do. If people wanted to learn more uh, and find out about what 350 Mass is up to, what, where would they go? I mean, what URL would they should they go check out? Totally. So our campaign website for the Polluters Pay campaign is polluterspayma.org. That's P-O-L-L-U-T-E-R-S-P-A-Y-M-A.org. And all we're word. polluters, all on word. And we're Polluters Pay MA on Twitter, now known as X. And we've been posting from the 350 platform which is 350Mass, on Instagram, Facebook, X. And we're experimenting with some of the others, but um, maybe don't look at those just yet because they're still kind of figuring out those other weird platforms. It's a bit of a uh, Wild West media landscape. Believe me, yes. And you, I get get an email from you weekly that is a climate 
uh, is a newsletter that you put out, right? People can, where would people go to sign up for that? Absolutely. And thank you for mentioning that. Yeah, we have a Tuesday Climate Weekly that goes out that ex- shares some of our actions, some of our allies' actions, and some solidarity actions with environmental justice and other groups for justice. And you can find the sign up for that on our website, which is 350mass.org. 350mass.org. I keep saying org, proving that I I was born and raised here. (laughs) But if folks just Google 350mass, it'll be the first thing that comes up. There you go. There you go. Well, well, this has been a very educational um, discussion. Uh, I think that that, uh, you've explained things very well and very uh, very well. If, uh, If you have a Dear listener, if you have a question or a comment about this show or you want to suggest something, please send us an email to podcast at massclimateaction.net. Let us know what's up. Uh, You can listen, of course, to the show on essentially all of the modern podcast distribution apps. We're on Spotify, we're on Apple, we're on Google, we're everywhere. If you Google the Climate Minute, it turns out that when we, we took the name, we didn't, weren't smart enough to copyright it. So there's a lot of Climate Minutes floating around out there. You probably want to search for Climate Minute and Mass Climate Action sort of in tandem, and that should pop us right to the top. Uh, but you can you can get, you can find us everywhere. Please urge your friends to listen to the show. Let that be your Climate Action for the week. We want to thank our good friend Dr. Tucker for his continuing research support and all the good ideas he submits uh, for us to think about. We want to close where we always close, by saying that we recognize the necessity of personal accountability for our actions, that we accept responsibility for building a durable future, that we believe it's our patriotic duty as citizens to speak out. And because of that, we have to insist that the United States transform its energy sector over the next decade under a just and equitable plan that uses regulation, investment, and a pre- well, and a polluter pays bill that respects environmental justice communities. So, Dan, thank you so much for taking the time to come on and chat. It's been very informative. We really appreciate your uh, making the effort. Thank you so much for having me, Ted. It's been great to talk, and I hope to come back. <laughs> I hope you do. Thanks to, to everyone for listening. We'll talk again soon. Bye-bye. Very cool.